Welcome to the Lawn and Garden Podcast with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards and co-host Jerry Urshabek. Originally aired on KGOS and KERM in Torrington, join Jeff, Jerry, and their special guests as they talk all things gardening in Wyoming. Our Lawn and Garden Podcast helps you improve your home garden or small acreage. Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek for the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. Today, we are joined by two guests. We have Tom McCreary. Hello, Tom. Hi, how are you? We're doing great. We're glad you're here today. Also with us today is Zach Hutchinson. He is from the National Audubon Society, and uh, I believe our program is going to be about birds today. Good morning, Zach. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well, and I, I hope it's about birds. Otherwise, it's a topic I might not be as strong on. All right. Fantastic. Well, let's take a few moments and listen to our sponsors and we'll be back and uh, get on with our program. You are listening to the Lawn and Garden Podcast, presented by University of Wyoming Extension, extending the land-grant mission across the state of Wyoming with a wide variety of educational programs and services. Good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek for the KGUS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. We have in studio with us today, Tom McCreary and uh, Zach Hutchinson. Zach is from the National Audubon Society, and our program is about birds. So, Zach, uh, I'm going to turn it over to you. And if you'd like to provide a little bit more information about yourself, that'd be great. And we can launch into our topic for the day. Okay, so yeah, I I work for the National Audubon Society, but more specifically, I work for the regional office, which is Audubon Rockies. Audubon Rockies serves Wyoming, Colorado, and Utah. So we're all one Audubon, um, but specifically, we serve the Rocky Mountain region. And that's very different from, say, an Audubon chapter, which many cities throughout uh, Wyoming have. Cities, I use that term loosely in Wyoming, but many communities throughout the state have Audubon chapters, which are, are more social clubs, and and uh, usually there are no paid employees with a lot of the smaller chapters. And so we are all one Audubon, but we also serve very different functions. And within Audubon Rockies, I am the community naturalist for the Casper area, and I'm also our community science coordinator for much of our region. So as a community naturalist, what does that entail? <laughs> it entails everything. Um, <laughs> uh, and it, it entails things that uh, aren't natural, including a lot of paperwork. Um, so the community naturalist, uh, one of our big things is is essentially we are like a traveling uh, nature center, uh, a nature center without walls, um, getting getting kids and adults alike outside and learning more about the place they live. You know, a lot of times in, in schools, with the curricula that they have, you know, they're, they're learning about places that uh, aren't local. You know, you learn about the food chain in the rainforest instead of the food chain in the sagebrush step. And so that's, that's something that uh, we strive to do is, is actually teach people about the place they live. That's great. That's necessary. Absolutely. It it very much (laughs) is because if you know more about the rainforest, then you do about, you know, what's 20 minutes outside of your house, then uh, you might you might struggle at some point. Yes. The rest of us will be in trouble at some point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, know, I know my backyard is one of those kind of things that since I've been doing the lawn and garden show, I just take more notice. And as you do take more notice, you have more questions. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's what we we encourage with with our programming is so we want people to be curious. We want them to get involved. We want them to do more, learn more. And in fact, last weekend, we just uh, we obviously because of the, the current situation, we had to have what is normally a very large in-person event. We had to do a virtual event and it's called a, a bio blitz. And it's normally a 24 hour collection of, of surveying in a given area. But this year, since we couldn't do it in person, we held this bio blitz statewide on a virtual level and it was several hundred people submitting observations from all over the state of everything from fungi to insects plants birds you name it and people were submitting observations of it through iNaturalist and hopefully it will just yeah continue to lead to more questions more curiosity and more opportunities to learn and grow so you know you mentioned iNaturalist that is actually an app that I have downloaded on my phone and have used it multiple times to help me identify certain things. So it's a very useful application for your phone. Yeah, so, it, it is. Since Absolutely. you brought that up, does it also have the songs of birds? So if you could have recording of the bird, uh, we have a lot of birds that, you know, Myrna goes, what? That's my wife. She goes, what do you think that is? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> And you look up in the tree and you try to identify who's saying that or singing that song. And you go, is, is that you? And of course they don't answer. And, and, you know, it'd be nice to at least be able to see maybe what you're looking at as per what you're hearing. Right. And, and so that, that's something that actually um, there's been a, a recent release, um, I believe in partnership with Cornell lab of ornithology uh, on an app that helps to identify bird song um, as well as bird calls and then there's already an existing app called Merlin and Merlin is basically a bird specific version of what iNaturalist can do you know with iNaturalist you take a photo of an insect or a plant or even a bird and if it's a good enough photo it can help narrow down your choices um, Merlin does that for bird photos specifically and then there is a, a, a new app that has just been coming out recently i've been seeing seeing the news about it and i i cannot remember for the life of me what it's called but uh, it's in its very infancy stages and so you know as it as it learns you know through submissions it'll keep learning you know how to to better do its job of identifying birdsong it'll become more useful but there yeah there's i mean there's all these amazing apps like that out there that help us to learn more you know when we don't have the naturalist standing right next to us right right yeah very good. So, you guys, I, I've got an interesting publication for the Wyoming Game and Fish, and since I used to work for them, i got to plug them a little bit. And it's uh, the Pocket Naturalist, Wyoming Birds and Introduction to Familiar Species. And it, it's a wonderful thing for Wyoming, Colorado, uh, birds in this area. And if you want a copy, all you got to do is call 1-800-434-434. Two five five five, and I'll go through it just quickly. It has hummingbirds, and we have three basic species. I'm sure there are more, Zach, but and then they have birds of prey, which are my favorite, mostly the great horned owl, perching birds, and there's a lot of those. And I saw a ton of them this this spring. Bullock's oreo, I'd never seen one, but I put suet out, and just all kinds of really cool birds, and then waterfowl birds and upland birds and woodpeckers. I had a woodpecker where I had to cut the tree down because he, uh, they were trying to nest and 
put a great big hole in a punky old tree. And so I cut it down. Talk about, talk about ruining bird habitat. If you took down the tree, it was trying to nest in. <laughs> it got hit by a tornado. Uh, and um, all the west side of it was, the branches were gone. And so I tried to, you know, and you can, the reason they got in there, they went in and down. Sure. It was fascinating. I cut that part out and gave it to a friend of mine who wanted it. But I didn't know much about woodpeckers, and they're very cool. Is your friend going to turn that chunk of stump into a lamp? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was <laughs> it was a nice stump. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, Tom, let me tell you what I did. I went out searching for a giant limb that had fallen off of an old elm tree, uh-huh. I, I put it in the back of my truck. I carted it home. I drilled a bunch of holes in it, stuffed peanut butter and, and uh, suet inside those holes, right. and then planted that pole. So, awesome. you know, you can leave some of those kind of things. It, it may not look as pretty, but they can, you can say, hey, come look at my woodpecker nest. Really? Absolutely. Zach, now I've heard different, I feed birds. I have two feeding stations, suet and all kinds of stuff. Should we be feeding the birds? I mean, in in the early spring, or should they say not to? Some people say not to feed birds, and but I, I like having them around, so I do. You know, with with bird feeding, there's there's a lot of questions about the ethics behind it, right? And right, right. and the the long term effects it has on bird populations. Um, and and one of the arguments for is that bird feeding is a simple. Is, is essentially it's it's you know a replacement of food that maybe has been lost due to habitat destruction you know as the human population grows <laughs> habitat gets removed and so what it does is it supplements by putting food back into the system where we've taken food out you know right. and and not just habitat destruction introduction of invasives things like that that you know that affect food sources for birds and so that's one of the arguments for is that it's it's supplementing what we've helped to destroy and then the other side of it is you know are you are you creating a dependency in birds and luckily with birds that dependency is is not very strong if the food stops showing up they're not as much like mammals where they don't know what to do if they stop being fed you know when you think about like a bear that gets habituated to a campground because there's always food in the campground birds are not quite like that if the food stops showing up the birds move that it's as easy as that the other side of it, though, is if you are going to feed, you have to clean your feeders because that is a major source of disease transmission. If you don't clean your feeders, then you're doing a disservice to the birds because right. then you've got you've got um, E. coli, you've got conjunctivitis, salmonella, all of these things that can be transmitted from bird to bird. And so if you do have feeders, you got to clean them fairly regularly. So how, that how how would anybody like to clean, eat off the same plate every single day without washing it in between, right? <laughs> or eat off the same plate that your neighbor may have done their business on. I mean, that's right. uh, well, that's business on the for sure. <laughs> so, Zach, how often do you clean? It it depends on the type of feeder. Hummingbird feeders need to be cleaned every three to four days um, because that's sugar water and that's just ripe for mold growth. And so, you know, hummingbird feeders. Three to four days is is about maximum. Now, early in spring, you might be able to get away with five or six days where there's not a lot of mold growth because of the cooler temperatures. But once you hit, you know, early June to mid-June, mold growth starts, you know, very quickly in those hotter temperatures. If you're talking seed feeders, 
you know, every week to two weeks, it depends on the frequency of the number of birds visiting your feeder. You know, if you have a lot of birds coming in, you need to clean them more frequently. But, uh, you know, if you've just, if you've just got a, a steady diet of, of some local birds that come in, one to two weeks is probably fine. And, and you clean most of these feeders by just soaking them in a dilute solution of bleach and water. Um, just, you don't have to, you don't have to do a lot of scrubbing or anything like that. Just soak them. If they're dishwasher safe, throw them in the dishwasher. I am all about finding the, the minimal effort, yet still doing the maximum potential of cleaning. So good bird so, hygiene. Right. The, even like the little niger seed, that's still again, one to two weeks. You know, it depends on, on what kind of feeder you have it in. And if it's a sock, they're, they're defecating away from the sock. Um, it, it, maybe you don't have to do that. And if it's a sock, you can also just throw it in the washing machine, right? If it's, if it's the plastic feeders where they have to stick their heads into a hole, I, I am not a fan of those. I am very much against them because a lot of these diseases, there's a wart and then conjunctivitis are transmitted through the fluids on the face, especially in the eyes. And so when a bird sticks its head into those little ports, it's rubbing all that bacteria onto those ports. And so if it's a port feeder like that, yeah, absolutely. It needs to be cleaned. You know, definitely not. You don't want to wait more than two, two weeks. I mean, that's, okay. and again, it, how many birds do you have visiting? You know, if you're not seeing a lot of birds, then, then, you know, maybe, maybe you don't need to do it every week, but you also got to consider, did it rain in those port feeders? If water gets inside of them, all of that food at the bottom, is just going to mold up and go bad. Right. And in Wyoming, right. we have a nice dry climate. So, our, you know, when you put food out, lasts a little bit longer. But, you know, if you live in an area where there's a little bit more consistent humidity, I mean, that stuff goes bad so quick. Well, and here's another another part of it. What about your sprinklers? I mean, you need to put that bird feeder in a place where you're not watering it as well. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So I'm really I'm really excited about that because we have. We have those port feeders because we have a lot of those small little birds. We also have a port feeder with a wire cage around it so that only those little small birds can get to it and no cats can get on them while they're feeding. So mm -hmm. how do you make those birds feel safe? You know, and that's that comes back to planting, planting things that give them shelter brushy plants especially things that that have a nice thick foliage that you know they can they can dive into when a predator is in the area something that they feel safe getting inside of preferably natives right but if you don't have that option then you get creative but i mean if you can find you know natives that also produce maybe a late season berry well then then it's serving two purposes then you have structure and you have food for fall migrants and so Always will I say plant natives first, things that they're used to, things that they know, and things that promote food sources for them, whether it's berries or the insects that depend upon those those uh, bushy plants. What's the best feed that you like to, to feed that attracts the most birds? I, I don't like to waste money on the seeds that have a lot of filler. If it's not 100% black oil sunflower seed, you're wasting a lot of money or you will attract a lot of birds that some people might consider less than favorable, like house sparrows and Eurasian collar doves, which are both non-natives and both invasive. Um, you know, a, a bird a bird could be non-native without being invasive, but both of those are competitive with our native species, with with tree swallows, with house wrens, with bluebirds. And so, if you if you do just black oil sunflower seed, the house sparrows will eat it, but not as frequently. You won't have the large numbers as if it say if it has a lot of millet in it. 
uh, a lot of millet will attract house sparrows. Absolutely. The smaller seeds, especially uh, attract house sparrows. Now, of course, millet also attracts morning doves, but again, it's, it's that balance, right? You got to find the balance if you don't want to attract the house sparrows and the Eurasian collar doves, but black oil sunflower seed, it attracts so many different species of birds, you know, everything from finches to native sparrows to uh, blue jays love it. Red wing blackbirds love it. I mean, it's, you can attract such a large variety with black oil sunflower seed. And then I prefer platform feeders because large birds can get on platform feeders. And so then you can get birds like doves, blackbirds, blue jays, all on the feeder, enjoying that black oil sunflower seed. What about fruit? I tried fruit this year and I got the um, bullock oriole. To, they really liked, I did, I cut oranges up. And, yes. I, just a feeding station, you know, and I just, they're a beautiful bird. So I really enjoyed that. And of course, the goldfinches, they like the niger. And I've got a feeder. And I'm glad you mentioned that I need to clean it because uh, I haven't been cleaning mine. And I'm sure that's not good. So I'll, that, that's a good tip, Zach. I'll start cleaning them. Well, and you'll, you'll see, you'll see like some of the birds will come in with a lot of buildup on, on their face. And sometimes that's a product of, yeah, of dirty, dirty feeders. Yeah. Very good. And even with the suet, though, you're always seeing those birds cleaning their beak, crisscrossing like you would a sword and cleaning their beaks off. I didn't even realize that they would transmit disease. Well, yeah. I have a watering station, Zach, uh, you know, where I, and I clean those every day because they get full of. Stuff. Yeah, <laughs> <Jump>. <laughs> you wouldn't want to bathe it, you know. Right. <laughs> well, that's that's why I so I, I I tend to recommend to people platform feeders that have a mesh bottom because then if it rains or something like that, it helps to wash a lot of that uh, fecal material, right. you know, through through the mesh, and uh, and they're easy to clean. You spray them with a little dilute bleach solution and, and rinse them off. If you've just got them fixed outside, you know, with your, your garden hose, you can do it that way too, especially if it's got that nice wire mesh bottom where things can just drain through. And then I just don't put out a lot of food every day. You know, if you put out one of those feeders that, that has multiple pounds, you just risk losing so much of the food to waste. You know, right. it just goes bad before the birds can use it. Unless, unless you're feeding in a place that, you know, sees a couple hundred birds in a few days, which you know, some places do, some places don't, but smaller amounts, you know, is fine. You know, the birds don't need to feed at your feeders all day, every day. <laughs> they're going to, they're going to get a little, a, a little bit of fat stored up if, if you're doing that. And that's not a bad thing, but if they're house sparrows, then I could care less how much fat they have stored up. And the other thing that's really interesting is I don't have feeders that the squirrels just hang upside down on my feeders and <laughs> eat and they scoop the the seed out of the feeder it is a mess but i like the squirrels so i don't i don't shoot them or anything <laughs> well and if, if you want if you want a, a non-lethal way to handle squirrels cayenne pepper cheap cayenne pepper buy a, oh. a one dollar container of cayenne pepper and sprinkle it on top of the seeds when you put it out because the squirrels know when you feed they learn your schedule you know, they're, they're just think of a dog. A dog knows when it's feeding time, right? right? If you feed every day at the same time, squirrels know it too. They know it. They're waiting. They're watching. They're listening. They hear when that crack of the, the plastic lid is, you know, and then they know, oh, here comes that good, good, sweet sunflower seed. So a little bit of cayenne pepper, just to sprinkle over the top of the oh, seeds. Yeah. They'll come down. They'll, because they're sniffing it first, they'll sniff it up into their nostrils. Then they'll start chewing on it. It doesn't affect birds. 
but the capsaicin, the stuff that burns, you know, mammals, mm-hmm. the squirrels get irritated by, it and then they'll stop coming around as frequently. So you use that, you know, for, for a couple of weeks, just sprinkle yeah. it on maybe every day, every other day, you know, when you go to uh-huh. feed, that helps a lot. This year at one of the, the research sites we have here near Casper, we had a black bear problem. He came in and he broke three feeders this year. And I, I got very frustrated with him and I decided I was going to treat him like a very large squirrel uh, because <laughs> he climbed into the platform feeder and sat in it and was just eating out of the feeder, just sitting inside of the feeder like he was a bird or something or a squirrel. And so the the remainder of the feeders, I took a I went and bought a bunch, 13 bottles of of, uh, of cayenne pepper. And I just loaded those feeders up because, again, doesn't affect the birds. But that bear has not been back since all that happened. So Good deal. So you get the powder, the ground up, right, Zach? The yep. ground up yep. pepper. Okay, that's what I thought. So yeah, just like you you okay. use seasoning your your food, maybe if you like spicy food, absolutely. Just like that. And it can be the cheap stuff, you know, that's a dollar a bottle. It's just gotta have that kick. And then, you know, when the squirrel's sniffing at it and then chewing on the seed and it gets in their mouth, you'll see them. They'll start shaking their heads and then they'll run away. And and again, you're you're conditioning them to learn that seed is not good seed to eat. What about spraying it down with bear spray? Well, uh, you know, the, isn't that the same thing? It's a capsaicin in there, right? right? And, uh, Just a different delivery method, <laughs> and, and a little, probably a little bit hotter too. I, I don't know what the concentration is in that bear spray, but I know that's not that's not a pleasant thing. And be really careful if you're doing bear spray, and then and then feeding and using that feeder and touching your face or your eyes. Right. You go ah, yeah. exactly, yeah. Zach, when I mountain biked up at, uh, between Guernsey and Fort Laramie, I'd see a lot of owls, and I really liked the birds of prey. And there was a mating pair, and I spent more. I'd stop and watch for them, and it was. And I can't remember what time of year Zach it was. It was in uh, like early maybe June when they laid their eggs, and then uh, later on they were they were gone. But uh, what a fascinating! Uh, great horned owls are fascinating. Western screech owls as well. They're smaller, and uh, there's just a lot of cool birds of prey around here. You know, um, the owls are interesting because you know they can nest so much earlier in the season. The large raptors, eagles, owls, um, some species of hawk will nest so early in the season because they're residents. You know, they're not migrating away during winter time, and so yeah, you'll see them where they're. You'll have some great horned owls that drop eggs in February. I mean, it's it's incredible um, because you know. As long as there's a, a food source, then they have no issues. You know, as long as as long as rodent populations are in a place where they can feed their chicks, they'll they'll start nesting very early. And owls are interesting because they don't build their own nests. They are nest thieves. They'll take them from magpies. Oh, okay. From I didn't know that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So they don't. If you see them on a nest, they didn't build that thing. They stole that thing. Oh, okay. Very good. They ate the owner. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's, it's one of the benefits of nesting early. You get in there before anyone else does. <laughs> Another thing, Zach, is this spring out at the Table Mountain. Uh, the Vineyard? Wildlife, wildlife Habitat Management Area. Oh. Yeah. Three times and watch the Sandhill cranes come in. Mm-hmm. And they weren't there very long. They, I, they flew north and... It was fascinating. The number of birds at Table Mountain was huge. 
and way fun to watch. And uh, we took binoculars out and just fascinating. I think they ran out of food. There were so many of them. I can't tell you how many, but thousands. That, yeah, Table Mountain, you know, uh, Kearney, Nebraska is known for the the migration of hundreds of thousands of sandhill cranes. And a lot of people travel there just to see that incredible movement of animals, right? To see a half a million cranes take off the Platte River first thing in the morning. It's incredible. But a lot of people don't know that in Wyoming, Table Mountain sees thousands of cranes. And yeah, it's it's not going to be identical to Kearney, but for for Wyoming, I've been there and seen somewhere between five to 10,000 cranes hanging out in Table Mountain. Yeah. And, and, and just before the cranes arrive, the number of snow geese and Ross's geese, which look like snow geese, but they're just slightly smaller and more petite, uh-huh. they'll number into the 30 and 40,000s of birds. And when they take off, wow. it's like you're inside of a tornado, but it's this glistening white and silver tornado as the sun hits those white feathers. Oh, it's yeah. It's incredible it. to be a yeah. part of it. And I, I, if anybody lives close, or even if you don't, uh, next spring, maybe we could talk about when they're I'll talk to the game warden here and see when they they come in and um, we can kind of, you know, I don't want to bother. They've got parking areas away from the bird. So I don't think it's a big thing, but they would be migrating through both in the spring and the fall, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I didn't know that. It makes sense, but. I notice them more in the fall when we're out, uh, you know, working in the yard, they'll be way high and flying south. And Mm -hmm. the the biggest concentrations at Table Mountain are in the spring. You know, in the fall, the cranes, they, they come through, the the snow geese, the Ross's geese come through, but your biggest concentrations are when they're staging in the spring before they're heading up to the, the high Arctic, right? Or, or you know, throughout, uh, throughout parts of the lower parts of Canada. So uh, the spring is the best time to see the big numbers, at least in that area. Okay. So, Zach, a lot of people feed birds but they don't particularly like one or two of the species that come do you have any ideas about how to keep those grackles are one of the things my wife says they all have babies they all are hungry feed them you know the um, uh, with with something like a grackle it's tough because they they are considered a nuisance by many but they are a native species and they are protected there's not much you can do against a grackle. Starlings, house sparrows, Eurasian collar doves, you, you can control them. And there are humane ways to do it. But with native birds, you can't, you can't do as much against a native species. And, and even though grackles, again, I know they're considered a nuisance, but they're a native species. And they are an important part of the ecosystem. If you will watch the grackles, you'll learn when they're spending most of their time around your feeders. If they're bullying your feeders, just stop feeding during those times. Oh, yeah. every year, every year when their chicks hatch out, there's there's a, about a two week period where their chicks will start to hatch out, and maybe there's a lot of birds at your feeder. Just stop feeding during that time. The grackles will find somewhere new to go, and then after you you've given them enough time, start feeding again. So Zach, why do they always look up? There's always like two or three of them. They're looking up in the air. Are they looking for predators? When, uh, well, if it's in spring, their display, their, uh, their ritualistic mating display, uh, a lot of it is, is their head is up in the air and they're, they're singing. Um, and oh. while it does not sound so melodic to us, to them, it's sweet, sweet music, right? Um, and, uh, and so. Very, very white. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wasn't going to sing anything, but that, that's where I would have gone had I. Um, and so they're, they're singing and they're displaying to each other. They're, they're showing off their, their plumage. I mean, they're, they're just really, they're forming pair bonds and, and then they're, you know, they're copulating and, and that's, so if, if it's in the spring, it's then um, also you'll see birds do that a lot too, where uh, especially birds that are prey to other species, they can see behind them sometimes when they lift their heads up like that. Mm-hmm. Or with, in Grackle's case, you think of how big their bill is. Sometimes they'll lift their head up slightly because they're trying to look at something because sometimes that big bill might get in the way a little bit. But if it's in the spring, usually it's, it's part of their, their pair bonding and their mating displays. All right, blue jays, salted peanuts or unsalted? Always unsalted, always unsalted. unsalted. If birds want salt, uh, they, they know how to find it in other ways. But yeah, always unsalted. And you know, the blue jay is interesting. Uh, if you allow me to go, go down a rabbit hole for a moment. Certainly. Blue, blue jays did not used to be in Wyoming. They were basically restricted to east of the Missouri River um, until basically until we started to plant enough trees along the the riparian corridors across the Great Plains that they have used those as green highways to to spread into the West. And so if you look at from the 1970s onward, Blue Jays have expanded into, you know, the the, the basin states simply because of the the damming of rivers allowing for you know cottonwood galleries to get uh, really big and full you know we had uh, you know all the big cottonwoods are starting to age out right but all of that happening after the damming of rivers allowed blue jays then to start to to move west and bird feeding has helped that as well because that provides a food source for them that even having those trees would not be enough and so having bird feeders has also it's allowed blue jays to expand westward and Again, since the 1970s, it has been we're getting reports now where they're they're residents in Jackson area now where, you know, 10 years ago, a blue jay in Jackson was was a pretty big deal. And now they're into Utah. Uh, And there's so many different types of blue jays depending upon elevation, correct? So so the Stellar's jay is is the mountain jay. And then and it, it is blue and black. What I'm referring to as the blue jay is, is the bird species that is that is named the blue jay, and that is the one that's got a bl- lot of blue and white um, and gray and some some black markings on its on its wings and body. But yeah, there are different types of jays, and yeah, if you go into the the Intermountain West, right, if you're up in higher elevation, you're going to see the Stellar's jay. But yeah, the the bird that came from the east is is the original blue jay. Are they called camp robbers? The the term camp robber, I've heard it mostly used for gray jays, which actually okay. just, just had its name changed by the birding authorities that be. It is now officially mm-hmm. called in, in the bird world, the Canada jay. Okay. But I, I enjoyed the name gray jay a little bit more. But uh, yeah, if you see it, it is a jay and it is gray and it occurs in the U.S. even though its name got changed to Canada jay. But that is the one typically referred to as a camp robber, yeah. Now, just 30 miles away in Guernsey, my brother had a powder blue blue jay and a stellar jay well they were no they were just a a real powder blue even the top knot was blue so that that 
if, if it had the, if it had the top the the crest area there you know that really peaked crest and it was blue that would be the the blue jay the original blue jay the oh, one that's yeah. just called a blue jay now if it didn't have that that little uh pointy part on top of its head you know the mohawk then it was likely a mountain bluebird which are very frequent oh. around the guernsey area so it's it's you know did it have that that crest because if it didn't it's most likely the mountain bluebird okay yeah, okay. the stellar. I, the stellar is I like it the best because it has the biggest top knot going, and it's just black. <laughs> now, I when I serve out peanuts, I try to break them in half because those blue jays will put three or four of them in their mouth. They'll fly over a fence or fly twenty feet and bury it. Do they really remember where they bury them? They remember a lot of the places. However, that's one of the ecological functions that that corvids serve. Um, and the blue jay in the east obviously would would do that with you know native plants in the east that you know things like oak trees, right? They would maybe stash uh, an acorn or something like that. In the west, a species that does it in the west, obviously stellar jays would do it to some extent. But also the uh, Clark's nutcracker, which is related to jays. The Clark's Nutcracker takes pine seeds. It pulls them out of the cone, and then it it does that. It it hides them, right? It caches them, and the ones they don't remember, then that is an ecological function of planting trees. Something that humans just cannot replicate. And there was a study done to show it is worth hundreds of millions of dollars in what would be human labor and and costs to plant the number of trees that the Clark's Nutcracker population plants in North America, because mm-hmm. They do it so much better than we ever could, and they do it for free, right? And so, again, it's all about you know, that ecological function. And, and while we shouldn't need to put a value on it, there is always an actual tangible value to humans, whether we know it or not. And, yeah, so the ones they don't remember, they turn into trees, hopefully. Social yeah. services. Right, gentlemen exactly. On, yeah. Gentlemen, on that note, um, we are going to take a break and listen to our sponsors, and we'll be back in a few moments. If you have an interest in gardening and want to help your community grow, the University of Wyoming Extension Master Gardener Program is for you. A new 14-week training session begins September 3rd. This session will be virtual, so anyone across the state is welcome to join. To sign up, visit the bit.ly link in this episode's description, or visit yoextension.org and click Programs Master Gardener. Registration is $75. The Master Gardener Program. Learn. Give. Grow. Looking for the best way to keep up with all the news from University of Wyoming Extension, the College of Agriculture, and Wyoming Ag Experiment Stations? The uwagnews.com website features real-time education, research, and extension events, and feature stories from across the state. Bookmark uwagnews.com today and subscribe to our monthly email newsletter, uwagnews.com, growing people, knowledge, and communities. All right, everybody, we're back. This is Jeff Edwards and Jerry Urshabek for the KGOS KERM Lawn and Garden Program. With us today is Tom McCreary and Zach Hutchinson, and we are talking about birds, which is fascinating. We're, we're glad that you uh, guys are with us today, and it's good stuff. But I do want to ask, so we're in the middle of the season right now. What birds should we be expecting to be seeing or be around or trying to keep around, Zach? It's, so it's, it's interesting right now. It's the middle of the season for us. 
birds don't follow the calendar, right? Birds right. follow food availability and, and daylight, the amount of daylight. So actually for birds, fall migration has started. It's not fall, but birds are already moving south again. And it's, it's, it's hard to, to picture that because we're used to the leaves change, the birds move. But for so many species that nest in the Arctic Circle and even our local species, if they succeeded at nesting early, some of them boogie. If they failed at nesting, they split. They're gone. So it's interesting because our local birds, the ones that succeeded, most of them right now, we are in the time when chicks need a lot of food. And so, you know, planting native plants is important because most of the food for chicks, even birds that eat a lot of seeds, chicks need insects. And so native plants provide habitat for native insects and caterpillars, especially a lot of caterpillars. Right. And so birds right now, um, what you're seeing, you're going to see a lot. You're not going to hear as much song because parents are busy shoving food into the mouths of babies and, and teaching them how to be birds. And so right now you've got, you've got birds that uh, are early arrivers that have finished nesting. And I've already seen several migratory species moving South. In fact, in June, we had a, a fun observation here in, in, uh, the Natrona County area, uh, right on the Natrona County, Carbon County line of a bird that nests in the high Arctic. And it's a, a pelagic species, meaning it spends pretty much most of its life other than nesting out over the open ocean. It spends pretty much all of its time in big water. And yet Oops. one was in the Shirley Basin and it's called a long-tailed Jaeger. And I would encourage you look up the range map of the long-tailed Jaeger. It should not be anywhere near the Shirley Basin where there is zilch for water. You know, there's maybe a cow pond and it was out there. It likely was um, it was it's getting to the point in its life. It was a younger bird. It wasn't a full adult where it maybe went to the Arctic, tried to breed, failed and then is heading to the Gulf of California. And so you're seeing a lot of that right now where you've got birds passing through, especially shore birds that, uh, you know, they're on their way south. But then our local birds. If, if they have babies, they're feeding them like crazy right now. So that's the thing to look for is look for all the hungry mouths that are just begging for food and the adults shoving the food into their mouths. So, Zach, yesterday I was working on a project out at the research station for UW and um, uh, happened to notice a, uh, a robin that had a large insect in its mouth and it was sitting on a high perch, but it looked frazzled. It looked like it had been run through a ringer. And I'm I'm guessing it was just taking a moment for itself before it went back and shoved that insect into its, its uh, um, offspring, but it just needed to take a break. You know, maybe that insect gave it a run for all it was worth. You right, know, if it was a you big know, insect. There there were feathers going everywhere. It was not well groomed. It was not well kept. It just needed to be. Just needed some time to itself. Oh. So also, what what happens now? So it's interesting. You know, birds. Their, their bodies time out energy needs, right? And so as soon as their chicks get to the point where they don't need as much parental care, adults will do something called molting. Mm-hmm. And molting, it's a high consumptive energy usage. It uses a lot of energy. And molting is when old feathers fall out, but more specifically, new feathers grow in. A feather falling out is not, is not molting. New feathers growing in is. And so maybe what you saw is a bird that when they go through active molt, they look, I don't want to say hideous, but they look ridiculous. <laughs> and so all these, because I mean, a lot of them, they'll molt all of their head feathers in at once. And so their head looks like something happened to them, that having a bad feather day, right? 
That's exactly what it looked like. Yeah. And so, so as soon as the chicks are old enough to kick out of their lives, not just the nest, because they'll, they'll stay with them for a short time after the nest, but kick out of you're on your own feed yourself, which Robins should be at that point by now. Um, Robins are a, a fairly early nester for us. Then the adults are like full steam ahead. I have to molt before I migrate. I think that's what was happening yesterday. <laughs> um, Zach, I watched a nature on public television about the American crow and the raven. And it was fascinating how they use tools, rocks to break open a number of things. But if you ever get a chance, watch that on nature. You can get it, I'm sure, on YouTube. And it was just fascinating what blackbirds, I see a lot of more of them in New Mexico and uh, Texas than I do here. I mean, there's a lot around here, but very fascinating. They're very smart birds. Corvids, yeah. Corvids are some of the most intelligent birds. And a lot of people don't realize the jays are actually related to crows and ravens. They're all corvids. They're all in the same family. So, So jays crows ravens nutcrackers all related and and they yeah they have extreme levels of intelligence and yeah they use tools and but they also have an incredible capacity uh for memory where they can actually remember human faces there was a study done where oh yeah um, I, they brought that up yeah, as well yeah they 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 harassed some crows with masks on and and then and they didn't they didn't hurt them or anything like that. They just they did some stuff that would aggravate the birds. And then they would walk around with the masks on and the crows would would come down and, and caw at them and, you know, give them the business. And then they would take the masks off and the crows would leave them alone. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's there's some examples, too. And, and I don't know if there's a, a real sound explanation for it. But in many areas where people feed crows and ravens. Crows and ravens will bring shiny objects to the feeders and leave them behind. Mm-hmm. And some think it's like it's like an exchange, as if they recognize that humans like shiny things and that they appreciate the food. And I don't know that there's a lot of evidence to say for certain that's what it is. But at this point, it, you know, it's hard to be inside the mind of a bird and know what they're actually doing. Hey, that's just a barter system in use, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I wish they'd bring something of value other than just tinfoil, though. A, a gold coin would be nice every now and gold then, gold nugget. <laughs> so, Zach, do, when the, when you say that the birds, do they look at food, or do they see food, or do they smell food, or all all of the above? Depends on the bird. However, and this this is something that you know this is it's been a, a wives' tale for some time that if you touch a baby bird, the parents will abandon it because they'll smell you. Most birds do not smell. At virtually little to no smell huh. capabilities. An exception for us in Wyoming is the turkey vulture. Turkey vultures actually have a large sensory organ that allows them to smell, and, and they smell carcasses, right? That's, that's what turkey vultures eat. They eat dead things. The rare occasion will a turkey vulture eat something live, but they love dead things, and they can smell carcasses, but pretty much all other birds, they cannot smell at all. So if you find a baby bird on the ground and you scoop it up and put it back in its nest, the parents will not abandon it. They might wait 20 minutes before they come back to the nest because they think a predator maybe was was hanging around the nest because they can't tell the difference between a human and a predator. And some humans are predators to birds. So they don't they don't recognize that, but they do not smell. And so most birds, they are identifying food by sight. I know when I fill my feeder, they're there within five minutes. And, and they, again, if, if you have like a, a lid that makes a certain sound, you know, when you go to get your food out, 
they can hear it and they do remember those things. They remember, yeah. hey, I hear that sound, food is on its way. So what about a water source for our birds? Tell me about that and how to, we have a small pond and it comes up onto a little bit of a rock and trickles down, but tell us how to, how to best serve water to our birds. Fresh and moving and shallow is best. Um, if you can't do that, then you just, yeah, you wanna make sure you're cleaning frequently with water and, and shallow. And, and if you have something that's a little bit deeper, more than a few inches, put some rocks or something in your bird bath that give birds something to perch on and grab on to get out of the water source if they were to get stuck. There's uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of ranchers are, are moving to um, these ramps that they put into their, their water tanks because birds will get into those, those big water tanks and they can't get out. They can't find a way to grab a hold of anything to get out. So a lot of ranchers are putting bird ramps into their water tanks and it helps small mammals too, but it, it ensures them they have something to grab a hold of and crawl out of that water source. And so do that for your bird bath, give them something to sit on or make it so that it's very shallow. They don't need a deep thing of water, especially if you're keeping it fresh. So float a board. I wouldn't say float something again. I would say rocks like rocks. little, little rocks that just give them something that they can grab a hold of and move themselves out of floating is unstable. So, so give them something stable. Cause like those ramps, they are secured and attached. So it's something that they can grab a hold of and easily get their way out of. Let me ask and go the other way. Then if you put a ramp in and you have fish in the bottom, isn't that an invitation for a raccoon? It could be, it could be. So yeah, if, if you have a, if you have a pond with fish, then maybe you don't want to, don't want to go that direction. Maybe find a different direction. Although honestly, if the raccoon wants your fish, the raccoon's going to get your fish, oh, yeah. right? That's I mean. <laughs> and I have a friend that has a, a, a pond just north of Torrington here up on the flat and blue heron seems to, they, they are really good fisher birds. They are. They're, they, uh, they've cleaned him out three or four times. He says, okay, I, no more fish. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's the one thing when you, when you make uh, when you have a small pond with fish in it, it's, it's like shooting fish in a barrel for a great blue heron, <laughs> right? I mean, literally you put fish in a barrel, that great blue heron is going to take advantage of it. Right. Um, yeah. You could, you could try to put up, uh, you know, some sort of bird safe preventative, you know, like a, a netting or something to prevent a great blue heron from getting to your fish. But uh I mean, animals are going to find a way a lot of the time. So, so we, we had a pond where uh, it was actually built underneath a pergola and covered on three sides and a heron got in and got our fish. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Zach, during the eclipse, we were near JM Wyoming and I watched the, when the sun went uh, behind the, or the moon, was it the moon? Yeah. Moon when, went in front of the sun. Right. Uh, the Nighthawks came out. They thought it was time to feed. It was, and it was right in the perfect area because about two minutes of, of the eclipse, you know, where it was really dark. And just, and, and also the barn swallows and tree swallows and, and bank swallows, they quit moving around. I, it kind of freaked the birds out, I think. I, I don't know. There, there were some studies done, and of course, it's hard to study in a two-minute period, right? But uh, they, they wanted to see, you know, how birds responded. And a lot of the preliminary results, yeah, showed birds were responding as if it were becoming nighttime. And, uh, and that's, you know, birds respond to 
light. So, I mean, as, as the light went away, a lot of birds thought, hey, uh, if, I'm, if I'm a singing bird, I should stop singing and, and go to roost. And birds that uh, come out in the evenings, some of them were starting to become more active. Right. So it, yeah, it was. I'm sure it was very confusing during that uh, that time for birds. The other thing I've got uh, uh, birdhouses, and I can't seem to get the birds to nest in them. What am I doing wrong? You know, that's that's a tough one because a, a lot of times what it is too is just it's just the habitat around your house. You know, if you put up bluebird boxes in places where bluebirds aren't going to have a lot of food opportunities. Right. then they won't nest there, right? If if there's not a place where they can feed nearby, then it's hard to get them to use it. Um, and so there's a lot of reasons birds might not nest in a, in a, in a bird box. Um, and it, it depends on, you know, what type of box you put out for what type of bird. But yeah, a, a lot of times it's just, you know, if there's more opportunities for nesting in, in, in prime areas, they're going to choose those first. Mm-hmm. And so you know, making making a yard as hospitable to a bird like a bluebird that does not eat seeds. So having feeders and a bird box, that won't attract a, a bluebird because they don't eat seed. They right. eat insects. You know, they're insects and berry eaters. So if you want bluebirds, well, then you got to start planting plants that have a lot of insect load, meaning a lot of insects are attracted to those plants, you know, caterpillars, things like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, then maybe a late season berry that would also, you know, be beneficial to the bluebirds as well. So it's it's making the area around the box just as welcoming as the box itself, because if it's not hospitable to that bird species, I mean, they wouldn't want to live there. But and isn't it isn't it true? Also, the whole size will attract a certain number of birds. Also, if you have a perch or no perch. Yeah. So the the, the bluebird boxes, usually they I think they say no perch for bluebird boxes, but a bluebird hole will attract bluebirds, tree swallows, house sparrows will occasionally use them as well. So you have to watch that. And if a house sparrow does use it, you you are allowed to remove the house sparrow nesting material and eggs. Now, if a tree swallow uses it and you wanted bluebirds, you can't remove those eggs. That's a native species and that's a major no-no. So if something uses it that's a native species, you can't take them out. Even though it's your box, you can't interfere with it. But if it's a house sparrow, absolutely, you can take that out. But so, yeah, the, the whole size will determine what you attract. A smaller whole size would maybe encourage chickadees and house wrens. And there's plans all over the Internet for, you know, the proper ways to, to build a box for a certain species. Um, but, yeah, the whole size will determine what species can use your box. And don't you want to clean that out on a yearly basis? Or once a bird is in there, it's in there for keep? You, you would want to clean it out very late in season, probably well after the first freezes, because there's a couple of things. There's uh, you want to wait, make sure that the bird didn't, some birds will double nest. They'll fit two, two nesting cycles into a single season. So you'll want to do it late enough that you, you don't accidentally, you know, disturb a bird that's nesting still also parasites. One of the reasons you want to clean them out is because birds, you know, have parasites specific to birds. So if you clean it out, you don't have to worry. They won't get on you. They, they are adapted to feeding on birds. So if you clean out the nest box, they won't bother you. They might crawl on you, but they're not going not gonna to suck on you or anything like that. So wait till it's cold enough, though, so that when you pull all that nesting material out, it kills those parasites. Any more questions? Gosh darn, I think we kind of tried to tap into you as much as we can. With Great, with, great information. With Tom. Our, our limited knowledge, yeah. Yeah. Tom, did you have any more uh, questions you'd like to ask Zach while he's here? 
I'd like to, this pocket guide has helped me a lot. And I just want to reiterate that it's uh, fantastic and shows most of the birds in Wyoming. We have cardinals that come through here occasionally, but not very often. Most of them are near Omaha. My son lives there and the cardinals are awesome. I like their song and they're a beautiful bird. And once in a while, we'll get one here. Yeah. Torrington and, and Goshen County sees, uh, sees cardinals almost annually. And again, usually at feeders. Cardinals, another one where, where people feeding and, and the planting of trees throughout the Great Plains, where historically there would not have been as many trees. Right. All has helped things like the Cardinal and Jay to expand. And so, yeah, you, Cardinals occasionally will, will peek into Goshen County there. there. There was actually one, I think, seen in Torrington uh, just a few weeks ago. And it's yeah. not common, but it does wow. happen. Yeah. Very cool. Well, so storms, storms also blow in different birds, correct? Absolutely. Um, there was a, a species seen two years ago in Wyoming that comes the, the farthest northern parts of its range are southern Mexico. And one showed up in Wyoming and there was a tropical depression on the Pacific side. And it came up kind of onto the western side of Mexico there. And, and the, the remnants of it came up through the western parts of the United States. And so there's some thought that, that it was a, it's a fork-tailed flycatcher. There were some thoughts that it got caught up in some winds and it just, it just let the winds carry it and it showed up in Wyoming. Um, so yeah, storms will absolutely, they'll, they'll drop crazy birds in the middle of Tennessee, for instance. I mean, you'll, you'll see a bird that belongs out on the open ocean, has no business being in, in Tennessee. And all of a sudden there you go, you've got a tropic bird in the middle of, you know, the smoky mountains or something. I mean, just, mm. uh, you'll, you'll see, you'll see crazy observations after big storms move through an area. So if you uh, come across something and you think, what is that? <laughs> Take a picture of it. <laughs> Zach, do you get uh, requests to identify things? I, I do. I get, uh, I, I get emails from people uh, with recorded bird song and I, I try my best. The sound quality is always, you know, uh, a struggle, but I get requests like that. I'll have people just describe a bird to me and, and hope I can figure it out. But problem with describing a bird between two people is the way I describe something, the way you describe something might be two very different descriptions. And so that, that can be a struggle at times, but uh, you know, always try to work through it. That's part of my job. And I actually enjoy talking to those people and explaining and, and helping them again, learn about the place they live. Do you have contact information that you'd be willing to share on the radio program? Absolutely. If, if you have bird questions, bird thoughts, want to learn more about, about Audubon and what we do, um, you can email me at Zach, Z-A-C-H dot Hutchinson at Audubon.org. Or you can, you can visit our site and you can find, uh, you can find my information on our website, which is Rockies.Audubon.org. Perfect. Very good. Thank you very much for being here today. We appreciate your, your knowledge and everything you're willing to share with us. Tom? Thank you for having me. Zach, it was awesome. I loved it. Thank you. We're happy to have you as a guest as well, Tom. And uh, I think you'll be filling in for me in a couple of weeks. That'll be good. I enjoyed this a lot. This was just prep for that. Uh, Jerry, thank you very much again, as always, for being yeah. here. And Zach, thank you. Hopefully you can come back and play with us again. <laughs> this is a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. All right, great. Uh, all right, perfect. So uh, thank you all, and you'll be hearing from us next week. You've been listening to Lawn and Garden with University of Wyoming Extension Specialist Jeff Edwards. 
presented by University of Wyoming Extension, growing people, knowledge, and communities 